Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. This week, we are revisiting the topic of culture, more specifically just culture. But this time, we're looking at the perspective from the Royal Air Force. But before we get into the main episode, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who's been sharing and engaging with the recent podcasts um, on the social media streams. It's great when you like and comment the posts that are going on because, A, people see what is going on and it gives them the opportunity to engage. And it means that we can have discussions, debates about some of the points raised. And that has been happening. And it's been great to see different people's points of view. But also, if you wanted to raise some points that you didn't want them raised publicly, either because you don't want to, uh, you don't, don't want them comments in public, but you still want to have the debate, um, or you still want to make uh, make your point, you don't have to do that publicly. You can always direct message me on, on the platform that you're using. Um, or you can just email me on we could arrange a team or something to have a chat about uh, about the points that you've raised. This is always um, an informative, uh, the idea is it's an informative platform and we try to share best practice. And other one person's best practice isn't necessarily another's and it's really good to be able to share and, um, and pass on um, ideas that other people have had. So don't feel inhibited by um, by thinking you have to stay stay there and be silent. Engage with it and drive it. Other people will jump on and, and we'll have chats. But if you want to do it privately, that is an option. Anyway, on to today's episode. Previously, we talked about Just Culture with uh, James Hayton from Bain Simmons, as well as touching on it on the recent uh, episode with Peter Brennan from, from the NHS. And I've been delighted to be contacted by a couple of podcast listeners to see, uh, see if we'll be keen to hear about the application of human factors from their perspective. And to be quite frank, I jumped at the chance. So this episode, I've been joined um, by Ian and Avril, both from the RAF Safety Centre. And... Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Barry. Thank you. So, before we get stuck into um, into the actual topic itself around around culture and how you guys play with it, can I'd like to take the opportunity to find out a bit more about you two, if I may? So, Ian, if we can come to you first, can you just give us an idea about sort of your current role and what you do on a on a day to day basis? Yeah, so I'm the Royal Air Force head of the National Safety Investigation Team. Um, so anytime there is an event uh, where things don't quite go as expected, and it's a, a human factors centric issue, um, as opposed to perhaps a, a component technology failure, um, people have the ability to do a human factors investigation. Uh, and I run a team of about 10 people employed solely full time uh, to go to some of our RAF stations uh, and be people who can spend a week or so asking questions about uh, human factors events. You know, not what happened, but why is it that good people turn up to work, want to do a really good job, and somehow things didn't go quite to plan? What are the human factors elements of it? Uh, and we then write reports and try and make systems better um, so that things don't occur again. Um, a typical day is advising people on the phone uh, on human factors events or um, allocating team members to go and do it or sometimes I will go and do those investigations myself and generally trying to be a, a champion for just culture 
human factors investigations uh, and something called error management, which is kind of people reporting little things that aren't quite right in order to stop them being uh, turning to, to bigger events. Cool. Um, and Avril, if I can put the same question to you, where, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what's your role? So I work in safety promotion in the RAF Safety Centre um, and I'm also the SME on human factors training. So uh, typically I deal with every type of safety promotion and every type of safety as well. So I go to safety days uh, across the Air Force. Um, I engage with um, other interfacing organisations as well to see how we can promote safety with them. Um, occasionally I dress up in high vis, top to toe, flashy lights and everything and give out some safety promotional merchandise. Yes, there are pictures of me doing that. Um, <laughs> but the other half of it is uh, human factors and error management training that I do for the Air Force, for the people in the Air Force to raise their awareness. That's really cool. So to follow that on then, Avril, how did you get into human factors in, in the first place? What was uh, why, why did you get involved in it? So I'm an air traffic controller by trade. Um, and I still remember the very first time I was introduced to human factors was on my air traffic training course. And it was about the Tenerife disaster. And that, that stuck with me ever since. And I've actually used it in some of my training as well, but in maybe different ways. Um, but it was at my first unit when I got let loose live uh, on the radar and in the tower. And so human factors is kind of past my blood when it comes to air traffic. It, it's it's what we do on a daily basis. And so I kind of, I don't know whether I volunteered or was voluntold. Uh, that I might be useful as a facilitator. So it was right at the beginning of our journey in the Air Force for formalising our training. So I was on course number nine <laughs> uh, as a facilitator, and I've been doing it ever since. That's really Absolutely. cool. Um, could you just, for the people who might not be aware of it, give, give just gives a really uh, brief overview of that Tenerife disaster, what, what, what inspired you about it? So it was actually listening to uh, voice recordings, particularly, and also the air traffic controller watching TV, uh, watching football, I remember. And it was it was that link of this was the environment I was going to go into as an air traffic controller, having that situational awareness to understand my communication, because that's obviously a very key thing, because we're really limited, just being voice, no video like this. Um, and how that could be translated to my everyday life so it was a really pertinent one to me i think that's yeah it's 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 interesting how you talk to different people so I, I myself fell into human factors in by accident and it's just little things that um that suddenly spur you into it. You, you suddenly discover it um ian do, how did you find out about human factors in in the beginning how did you were you trained or did you yeah humble? i think probably somewhat similar to Avril actually my my background's engineering so i i joined the air force 20 years ago as an as an aircraft engineering officer um and yeah, even then your basic training uh and engineering training within the air force is about six months long uh, that includes human factors you know the, the language of human factors communication stress pressure memory understanding kind of the how we got to work um and i guess over sort of 10 years I always that had always been in the back of my mind. I was very conscious about, you know, why we're we doing certain work on aircraft at half past one in the morning. And actually it was my job as the engineer to go, you know what, I know it's important to go flying, but I'm not happy that we can do it appropriately. We're gonna stop work now and we're gonna accept the fact we're not gonna fly in the morning because that's you know the human factor limitations of what we're doing work. So for about 
10 years, I'd kind of actively had that just as part of my knowledge on how to work in the Air Force. Uh, and then at my sort of 10 year point in the, my career, I got moved into a, a safety team where I was, uh, I guess, the, the champion of safety for engineering on a particular Air Force base. Um, and I went through the human factors training school that the Air Force have, became a human factor facilitator. And I went home that night just thinking, this is really good. You know, I, I kind of got this, but no, I absolutely really get it. And I just see why it's so important. Um, and I think you then run a couple of sessions with people with kind of you know, the workforce and you see their eyes light up to go, wow, I, I absolutely get it. And I think from there, I was kind of hooked. Um, then I left the Air Force for a couple of years and got into the leisure industry. Uh, and just one day I happened to see a, a job doing these human factors safety investigations we advertised. I thought I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think when you go to bed at nighttime, you can't get a job advert out of your head. You know you're hooked. Um, and yeah, I think human factors, you know, it just makes sense. Um, and I love it. Brilliant. It's always interesting when you're almost like with any job like that, isn't it? That um, if you, yeah, if you can't get out, out your mind, then clearly you've got to do something about it. Um, but um, it's interesting to meet some people as well who've been in the forces, then left and then then been, been dragged back again. Uh, could you just give us an overall, you know, do, was was the forces something you wanted to do right from school or was there, bit, or did you fall into it or? I think uh, I've always been an engineer. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure about 10 years old, my, my parents were telling you, they gave me a watch once and uh, on Christmas Day, by Christmas Day lunchtime, it was in pieces, never to be reassembled <laughs> again. Uh, I've always liked tinkering stuff and I've always thought helicopters were pretty cool. Um, and so going through university, um, I quite liked just sort of engineering. Uh, I've been an air cadet previously and I think the cadet organisations in this country are, are brilliant ways to keep children busy teaching really good skills and actually the air cadets gave me an insight into a, an employer the royal air force that i never really thought about before mm-hmm. and uh, i thought i quite like this life um and engineering in the air force you know, looked pretty good cutting edge technology responsibility young age uh, and so i gave it a shot uh, and i i do think the military is just one of the best careers people could get in these days um i don't think people always fully understand quite what a military career is like but if you want an employer which is great technology, a great workplace, great people, then I think the military is a fantastic career for people. And I'll put the um, the link to the military sign-up uh, thing in the um, in, in the description. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I see what you said about the uh, air cadets. I was an army cadet, um, which obviously led to me joining the uh, the army rather than rather than the air force. But um, that's where I guess I was right. You were wrong. But we'll 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 not worry about that. Um, Avril, what was your um, um, driver to to join the RF? Well. I don't remember when exactly, but in my teens, I wanted to join the Navy. (laughs) Um, I actually went through officer selection, uh, passed all that, but then went to university, uh, studied oceanography, as you would, that makes sense, uh, and was part of the University Royal Naval Unit at the university I was at. And unfortunately, uh, I determined it wasn't the right career path for me at that particular time. Very different in those days, back in the 90s, uh, especially for women. It's completely changed now. Um, so when, okay, what do I do with a degree in oceanography? Um, let's go and do a master's whilst I think about it. So, uh, did one in environmental studies and then went, okay, uh, let's get a job then. So luckily enough, I could get a job, uh, working with Thames Water, being a bit of a geek, uh, geographical information systems and realized I couldn't be a civvy either. So <laughs> somewhere between the two, the Air Force kind of crept in, um, 
so yeah I, I decided let's have a go and I was very lucky I passed all the aptitude tests um and of course they say the moment you pass air traffic you never get enough air traffickers so if you pass that you know you're going to get a letter saying sorry we're not going to offer you the job that you actually asked for but would you like to be an air traffic controller <laughs> so i said well do you know what i just want to be in the air force um my calling was very different from a lot of air traffickers who want to be air traffic controllers i just wanted to be an officer in the air force so um, that's kind of why I've I've stuck with it for so long when I've seen quite a few other air traffickers leave and maybe go uh, civilian. Um, but again, it's kind of how I ended up doing human factors. So it's not such a bad path. No, I was going to say, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I do think possibly doing a lot of people a massive injustice, but when I see different careers through the, through the different uh, services, it does tend to be that the RAF, streams tend to be a lot more adaptive to what people want to do in their careers and, and particularly if you want to go through a, I guess a technology focused career um it does seem to work better that way um but no, no doubt I'll have the army and the navy now screaming at me through through this saying that I'm completely wrong um but no that that's really interesting um what I'll do if you don't mind is we're just going to take a, a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about um about the cult the culture in the RAF so we'll be back right after this You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And t today we're talking to Ian and Avril about culture in the RAF. So let's get stuck into this this whole um, culture piece. Uh, I mean, aviation has been um, quite at the front of, I think, promoting good human factors practice uh, and improving safety just by the nature of, of what it is. Um, how do you think things have changed in the RAF in the past, say, in the past ten years? So, Ian, if we come to you first, how, how do you, how do you think things have evolved? I think to answer that question you almost had to you have to look kind of beyond the 10 years a little bit to look at the history to then see what changed um yeah we touched on Tenerife for the 1970s and i think that was a massive yeah a catastrophic event which drove kind of the cognitive psychology sort of teamwork elements and crew resource management of human facts and aviation then you I guess you look at kegworth and sort of late 80s um I think that drove aviation down a certain way. And so that's probably why when Avril and I went through training, uh, you know, human factors in basic training was kind of accepted a norm. Um, I think our watershed moment for the Air Force, which has driven a massive amount of change, inevitably was 2006 uh, with loss of the Nimrod aircraft, XV-230, uh, and what, 14 of our colleagues. That was a, a, a pretty emotional time for most of us. And I think we thought we were good at what we did then, and we realised we weren't as good as we thought we were. Um, the Charles Haddon Cave report that came out uh, a couple of years later um, was was really quite uncomfortable, but actually we are in a, a much better place since then. What's changed since then? Um, we have a regulator, so the Military Aviation Authority, which was formed 2009. You know, that, that effectively has shaped military aviation. And I think if you joined the Air Force, like, if you had someone who left the Air Force 15 years ago, and you looked at how we're doing things now, they simply wouldn't recognize the safety systems we have because they're so dramatically different uh, and frankly, much, much better. Um, so yeah, a, a regulator coming in who was focused on safety, uh, absolutely got just culture 
absolutely gets human factors. Um, at the same time, we created something called DAMES, the Defence Aviation Error Management System, which is all about your kind of classic iceberg model of we know we can see the top of the iceberg. We have no idea what's happening below the waterline. And DAMES was the concept of saying, let's report more. Let's report these minor things. Let's fix these minor things. Um, and I guess you look at the reporting cultures, um, you know, the number of safety reports we have now compared to, say, 15 years ago, easily double, triple. Um, now, some people go, that's surely a bad thing. Actually, no, it's a, it's a brilliant thing because we know in really quite good detail how our organization is functioning. Um, and I think we have a level of data that many industries would be quite jealous of, frankly. Yeah, and that reporting is, has shot up because we were absolutely get the importance of fixing small problems for the big problems. And that's probably a, a, you know, one of the biggest changes we've had in the last 10 years. I think in terms of just culture, uh, another massive cultural change is how we investigate things and, and the blame word. Um, I think 15 years ago, we were interested in what happened and who did it and a little bit about why it happened. We never really scratched the, below the surface. And nowadays, what much interested is why is it that good people came to work and made the, a, a silly mistake in hindsight? Inevitably, it's not the person; it's the system we set them up with. It's the tools, it's the equipment, it's the workload, it's the cultures, it's the norms, it, it's the system we place people in. Um, and so, we introduced a system called um, well, just culture investigations. You could Google it as an OSI, so occurrence safety investigation. So, actually, training people to do human factors investigations in a in a not blame free because we still hold people to account but in a way which is saying you know honest mistakes honest genuine mistakes wouldn't expect to be punished um writing the reports um so our peers now investigate things going wrong as opposed to senior officers um those reports are then reviewed by our peers uh, again rather than senior officers um and i think we've built a lot more trust uh, yeah and, and i see just culture relies on a workforce that trusts their leaders and trusts an open and honest conversation. And I think we now have a workforce, particularly as you know, as generations go through the Air Force, we have a workforce who are really open and absolutely get the importance of having frank conversations, even if they're quite uncomfortable about some of the truths coming out, because you can't improve things and make things better unless you speak the open, honest, frank truth. So I think all those things, you know, the regulator, the, the DAMES program to improve errors, and that DAMES program is, is pretty much 10-ish years old this year. Um, human factors-centered investigations, uh, occurrence review groups, you know, this peer-led just culture review reports. Um, I think all that is unrecognizable to someone who left 15 years ago. And it all started from kind of the Haddon Cave and the, the Nibbled crash um, and started really rolling out about 2012-ish. You know, these things were in place wide. So yeah, it's a massive cultural change and system change in the last 10 years, all completely for the better. Good. Avril, from your perspective as the sort of human practice SME, you, you must have seen a, that radical change in, in what you're delivering as well. Um, what sort of change have you what, what sort of change have you observed? So over my time in the Air Force, I mean, if we take it back to the 1990s, we were starting to do human factors training, but it was called different things. You can still see some of those offshoots as well today. Um, but it was kind of consolidated, as Ian said, by that um, Nimrod crash uh, where 14 people lost their lives. Uh, and I think that focuses the mind quite a lot, even on a personal level, when you look at the pictures and see see who it was uh, that actually introduced us properly to human factors. Um, and 
now that we're kind of moving through that time, what we're seeing is before it was very air centric. It's about air safety. And actually, regulation still says that it's air safety. But as the Air Force, we are leading, sorry to say, ahead of our, our sister forces in this and saying, well, this is more than that. This is safety. Well, actually, I would argue it's more than that still, but we're still on that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're now having is that everyone does human factors and error management training um, for people in the RAF. That's at phase one training when they first join. So they're introduced it right from that start to get that right culture, start to embed it. And then it's progressed on as they move out into the Air Force. But it's not just about the RAF personnel. It's about the people who sit next to us. Um, I work with an FTRS, so full-time reservist, and I work with a civil servant. Well, why am I any different to them? Well, the answer is I'm not. Um, so now we make sure that our contractors have to do it, equivalent training, locally employed civilians, um, other military that come to join us within our area of responsibility. And we highly encourage the civil service that work in AOR as well, um, because we are all part of the same team. Um, and if we don't understand it, how can we build a culture um, that is common across all? And uh, we're starting to suddenly look more into this. Well, what does just culture actually mean on an everyday basis? Um, I often talk about it with people that say, well, actually, I have it at work, but I don't have it as a parent. That's not how I treat my children. And actually, what I'm trying to get to is that point that it's all pervading. Um, I was thinking about it last night just um, sweeping sand into the jointing of my paving stones. We'll work out how human factors comes to that. And I was trying to work out what the most effective, efficient way of doing that was and making sure I didn't fall down the steps backwards as I forgot they were there. (laughs) So, yeah, human factors really does pervade. And it's um, what we're starting to see that coming through more and more as the decades go on. But it does take time to change a culture. So you mentioned about the, the the training courses that you that everybody now does, and I believe they're um, everyone has to do that that two yearly yeah. uh, refresh within course. Within well. two years. Say again. Sorry. Within two years, that's very critical, actually, because what we don't want to say is, well, every two years you have to do this. Actually, yeah. if there's a need for it before then, we want them to do where there's a need. I see. That's really really neat, isn't it? Because it's it's actually putting the importance on actually the, the content of the course rather than just the tick box of having it. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm checked in for, for that every two, every two yeah. years. So if, if I was to go on one of these courses, what, what would I, what would I see? What, what, what sort of things do you cover? Well, if you get me, <laughs> um, the thing is we're facilitators. I am an instructor in human factors and error management as well, but the two yearly courses are um, done by facilitators. So we are there to have a chat with people to get them to talk about their experience of human factors, error management, culture, all these things. Um, And some would say, well, I'm an air trafficker. uh, There's a very real link. um, But actually now I'm at uh, Air Command and I sit behind a laptop every day. Mm -hmm. Where where is that link? And, And that's my skill as a facilitator is to be able to tease out these things from the people, see what's affecting them in their lives. And that's really critical. Um, because actually human factors, if you really boil it down to a simple phrase that I like to use is, why do people think and act the way they do? My favourite question, why? Um, And it's getting that common knowledge, because actually, we all have slept since the last time we did human factors. (laughs) 
as a course at least. And yeah. uh, I like to kind of introduce those key points. What is an error? What is a mistake? What is a violation? Actually, when Eamon's talking earlier, my HF facilitation head was uh, coming on saying, honest mistake. Yes, but they're all honest. That is the definition of a mistake. Um, yeah, and and but actually our understanding what a just culture is is a really mm -hmm. interesting discussion I often have because we as facilitators put together our own courses. Mm -hmm. So there is no set format. And I never know quite where it's going to go because it depends who I have in the room with me. Yeah. Um, but just culture is a really critical thing and our understanding of it. And I think in the RAF, our understanding what's a just culture, people talk about being fair, being accountable. I like to challenge them and say, well, what's the difference between just culture and justice? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I actually make people think and go, right, well, with just be, something bad has already happened and therefore deal with the consequences. Now, there is an element of just culture in that, the difference between manslaughter and murder, for instance. But with a true <laughs> just culture, it's got to be intent biased. And that's a really tricky thing for humanity to do because it's against our very nature. Yeah. And it's kind of getting people to not only spend those three hours uh, thinking about human factors and how it relates to them at that point, but I want to be able to, for them to be going away, asking themselves questions like, how do I apply this to parenting <laughs> or road safety or anything else? So before we dive a bit more deeply into the just culture bit, when you look at what we've done around human factors and that error management piece, why is that so important for the RAF community? And and actually, as you say, the, there is a wider community there as well. What? Why is it really so important for us to get it right? Why don't we just not bother and just crack on the way that we used to do it? Because ultimately, it's about efficiency. Now, that may be a contentious argument because people say, oh, human factors, safety. Very easy link. But actually, human factors is about efficiency. Safety is a spin-off of it being efficient. If you are efficient, you're not going to hurt people. You're not going to kill people. You are going to do the optimum job in whatever capacity it is. And the key thing between organisations these days is we understand it's not necessarily about the equipment. It's about yeah. the human. The humans design the equipment. How does the, the human operate with that equipment? And it's, it's getting that critical thinking from people that allows our organizations to be efficient operationally effective and yet at the end of the day i get to go home safely that is brilliantly described actually the um i think the idea that um most when we when we try and sell the idea of human factors into in certainly into sectors and areas that don't use human factors it's why do we need to bother around that sort of stuff when you actually say well actually it's it, bottom line stuff you know if you get if you get it right up front um you'll improve your bottom line um that's a really diff hopefully a different way to get them look at to look at it and that, that's why i think um you know when we come up with case studies of showing how it works then it you should be able to almost it should be a license to print money in many ways um it's still very much a slog, but I think the you're right when you put it when you put it in them them sort of terms for businesses to, in particular, then that that helps them helps them understand to a certain extent. Um, Ian, when to dive back into the um, the just culture bit, 
what's been if if you're saying that the RAF is has now got got a just culture and it's now permeating throughout the organization um how have you managed to do that and what what difference have you seen over that time and and just how have you managed to get that sort of implementation okay um i think i think it's worth saying there's always been a just culture but there's different levels of just culture you know how, how yeah. mature is your just culture might be a better way of putting it uh, and i think in any organization it from the outside people often look at it as you know, that's the organization when you're inside it you actually realize there's lots of different tribes it could be tribes based on location tribes based on your career tribes based on your kind of chain of command yeah and and one group of people at a location who work separately to a, a different organization or a different group of people could have a very different culture and I think what we've seen in the last 10 years is actually it's uh, almost standardized, you know, just culture to be much more even. So you can move between those different tribes and you know where you stand. And I think Avril's, actually, Avril's comments uh, about performance are spot on. I would even say there's probably a happiness element there that if people have a happier workplace um, because they know where they stand and they, and they trust that they can be um, take appropriate risks, but also help you account for those risks and not be blamed when things go wrong unfairly, I think you get a happier workforce and a happier workforce should be more productive. So it's almost a kind of a circular loop there going on. Um, I think I think we've, first we ask different questions nowadays. So if something happens, rather than going, why did you do that? We might say, why did you do that then? Or if we're really good, we might go, Explain to me the situation you found yourself in that led you doing this. So I think we ask questions a different way. Uh, we don't automatically kind of look to blame people. Um, we understand why, you know, why did a good person come to work to do a good job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think that just the way of thinking um, reinforces just culture. Um, I think something called the DA fair model, um, which, you know, you touched with James Hayton when he interviewed him, Bain Simmons. Um, for those kind of you know most of your listeners probably won't be aware the the fair model is effectively a, a flow chart where you understand the facts of why someone behaved in a certain way um, and it's a series of questions and it, you end up with a was it a, a procedural violation was it a mistake was it an error or all, all buzzwords which to you know, your average person might feel the same but actually really to those in the human factors world really helps you understand why the person made their decision mm-hmm. and we understand why they made that decision it helps you understand what actions you need to take to stop a similarly good competent person falling into the same trap so that that da fair flow chart which you, you people can google if you google the manual of air safety it, it's in there it, it lets people know where they stand so someone can have something go wrong with them at work they could take out their sort of paper copy of it and the mind go, right, if I put myself through the flow chart, what's going to happen to me? And they can then get the confidence to go, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm protected because I've done an honest mistake. Honest mistake. Yeah, I've done an error, which actually is pretty common to my organization. Happens yeah. to lots of people. I've now got the confidence to flag up to things. Um, we have a sort of some phrases called first age, second age, third age reporting. Um, yeah, first age is generally saying, this happened to the system second age is more you know those people over there they've done this wrong and third age is the i've messed up i want the world to know about it because i messed up and everyone else can learn the easy way rather than learning the hard way themselves and i think when you have a just culture established and when people know where they stand and when they see a just culture actually followed by the leadership they get the confidence to put those third age reports in 
and reports you know we see reports now where people are really open and honest and, and they admit to doing something wrong which they never would have done 10 years ago 10 years ago they would have been ridiculed criticized and possibly even had their career stopped for it nowadays you go thank you for sharing because your one easy lesson you've learned has actually probably you know saved money made some more efficient and we can share the lessons with good people so if you want to be safer make more money be more efficient and have your work have your happier workforce i think people need that confidence to be open and honest when things go wrong um and i think we we don't brush things under the carpet uh not every industry is like that but i have real confidence and i know this because when i go and do safety investigations and i i sit in a room with people who could close up who could not talk to me they're actually really mature and they're open they say you know what this is what's wrong this is what's wrong with the system this is what i do try and do to get around it i know it's not quite right sometimes but it's safe and rather than going you shouldn't be doing that we go right let's fix that system thank you for being open and honest let's make life better for everyone else and it's just a, a really mature way of doing business and it works people are happier we're more efficient and we're safer there's nothing wrong it's in fact just culture there are no downsides to it at all so is there not an argument though that because you're you're a branch of the services you um it's an authoritarian organization if some if you're telling somebody to act in this way because you are more of a uh, you're slightly more you're a more integrated organization than than most businesses because you you know you have to live and breathe with each other as well as you know fight with each other and, and and all that sort of stuff i don't tend to do that as much when i'm going down to see my team um you know we we get together at nine o'clock in the morning we leave at four o'clock in the afternoon um because you've got that, that authoritarian nature right? is it not easy to do you you're you're um in, you're demanding people work in that way um is that not is that not the way it works? You know, I, th- I think the air force is. I think the military is actually a broadly representation representative of society. It, even though you know, I think there's a statistic that says we recruit something like the top two three percent of the population. You know, in terms, and we do tend to recruit generally intelligent people, quite motivated, dynamic people who you know they're not shrinking violence. They tend to be out there, but actually they also do represent. You know society as a whole um and it's a whole mix of personalities uh and i guess you know we can have a long conversation about motivational theory and leadership theory and there absolutely is a time and place you need to say people just get on with it but we actually want people who are really flexible who can adapt um my my analogy and it may not be a very good analogy bear with us is uh, you know maybe i own a machine that makes chocolate biscuits if i'm in the business of making chocolate biscuits that's great people just do as you're told day in day out but the nature of the military is we have to be absolutely flexible um you could be on flood defense one week you could be doing something in europe the next week you'll be on a different operation the third week so what i actually need is a machine that does chocolate biscuits on monday chocolate digestives on tuesday chocolate custard creams on wednesday and i need it to be really flexible and inherently changeable and so a draconian just do it this way culture doesn't quite work so we, we actually encourage a flexible um mindset in our people and trying to for our people to find the balance between being flexible and following a set um, a bunch of set procedures can sometimes be quite tricky um and that's why we go you know we have to be intelligent the way we manage our people we have to recognize that we've got intelligent very intelligent credible competent people who are problem solvers 
And if the system's not perfect, they inevitably will try and work around that problem because that's just what the attitudes you want. So it's all about trying to find the right balance in people. I think what's important is also accountability is important. People know where they stand. They, they need to know where is flexibility and uh, problem solving acceptable and where do you need to put your hand up and go, actually, there is a problem here. I've got a solution, but I haven't got the authority to do it, but I know who has. And that's probably, again, a slight changing culture that we try to make it easier for people to put their hand up and say, there's an issue. I need some support with it. Yeah, I guess I I fell into that real stereotype, didn't I? That the um, that the military is this authoritarian, uh, draconian thing that you see off the TV of twenty, thirty, fifty years ago. Yeah, and most people don't recognise um, just how much it's evolved, as well as you know, because the militaries get military does get smaller as well. So you have to rely on um, people, as in people, and people not uh, are not just bodies. Um, yeah, I think if you put a whole bunch of Air Force people in a room and you just said, put your hand up if you either have a university degree or you're doing some sort of further education, I think you'd be really shocked the sheer quantities of people in the certainly the Royal Air Force who are actually really quite intelligent, well-educated people. Mm-hmm. Um, the days of kind of grunts, if that ever existed in the Air Force, I'm not sure we ever really had it. Yeah, that's gone. We have a very switched on intelligent workforce. Yeah. Um, so what happens then? I mean, James brought this up when um, when we inter- interviewed him in, in that episode, because there, there is that again misconception, I guess, that just culture means that nobody has to take responsibility for their actions. Um, how do you deal with that? Because clearly, at some point, you know, people do make mistakes and things like that, and some people, some of them have um, significant consequences. How do you balance off that um, that getting people to admit uh, to what's happened, what's gone wrong, et cetera, et cetera, and taking responsibility for what they've done? Okay. I mean, it's, I guess if you talk people through the process, it might be an easy way of doing it. So um, if we have a human factor safety investigation for, uh, yeah, let's make something up completely. Uh, an aircraft gets damaged by a vehicle hitting it or something. You know, classic sort of flying operations. Any country in the world, vehicles hit aircraft. It, yeah, I don't think there's any airline operator that doesn't have it happen. Uh, we would do an investigation. We would interview um, everyone we could possibly could do because everyone's perception of the event is always different and you want to gather in all those kind of perceptions to go right what really happened um, we write a report um, and then rather than that report going straight to the sort of a director level manager uh, we present it to this independent review panel which typically are, are our peers so junior and middle managers the sort of people that the workforce think are really credible decent people who they look up to and respect um, that panel will talk to the investigator and try and understand you know what happened why it happened what was the behavior type going on and we talked about the the da fair flow chart um another couple asked a couple of other questions things like does it happen often to this person because if the same person is making the same mistake again and again actually that is a an accountable thing you know the person should have learned by then and we'll deal with them differently we might ask the question of does it happen to the organization quite a lot because if the same mistake is happening to different people Actually, again, it's not a person failing, it's the system failing. And we are looking around to look at this as a, a system. You know, how is the system performing rather than how is a person performing? Um, and after all that is the final question of, actually, if you discipline someone, does it improve safety? Is, is there a benefit to it? And we ask all these questions and that panel appears. They don't make a decision, but they give comments. Uh, and that comment goes to the person's line manager. And ultimately, that line manager then has the decision of, do we 
hold that person to account. And sometimes that that might be a disciplinary action, but actually 99% of the times it's not needed because we've got a good person who's just made a mistake and it's unlucky that it was that person at the time. It could have been a different person the next day. Um, But I don't think we shy away from it. When it has to be done, we absolutely do it. It, It's it's essential. But in 99% of the cases, there's no benefit to it. It's the system we have to focus on. And we're better putting our energy and our frustrations into fixing the system than trying to discipline the person. Yeah. Can I just add something to that as well? It's um, because obviously Ian's coming from the system-based approach. I'm coming from it from a personal approach. And actually, it's a live it, show it, show people what it looks like when they're not expecting it. Because I've been in, in areas where the culture has been poor, shall we say, um, and the best way to show a just culture is when something doesn't happen uh, that you expect. I don't like saying going wrong because it's just not the outcome you expected because yeah. it could be something good. Um, then show and act it, live it, breathe it, um, act in the way that you know you should do um, for a just culture. And that actually takes so many steps forwards because people go, ah, oh, this person acts this way, I can go to them and then they will pass it on to other people. Um, And I've had a lived experience of that where involving uh, military defence police, actually, where they just didn't trust us in command um, until such a time that something went in inverted commas wrong. Um, And then suddenly they were surprised by how we reacted. And that's the best way. But also on a daily level, So we have hundreds, thousands of errors and mistakes each every day. We're only human. Um, And it's okay to say, I've done this wrong. Uh, It's not what I anticipated to do. I've made a mistake. And I have to say, just owning up to them, um, looking both ways, the more senior people are actually really open to it. Mm. Um, But also to reinforce uh, my boss, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, he berates himself when he makes a mistake he berates himself and i say it's it's okay boss you're only human it's all right and i think that's critical to bring it down on a an everyday basis as well yeah i think i think it's easy to forget isn't it that um especially if you've got people who are very very high up in organizations that um we are all just people and um yeah no that that's a really good point if you to then take that a bit further if um if if other industries are listening into this idea of, of just culture, maybe they're hearing it for the for the first time. What are, what are the tips would you give them um, to be able to do to be able to transform their organisation into what we're calling a just culture? Avril, what do you think? What what would be your tips? Well, I think it to understand how the Air Force has done it and see the journeys. I mean, you can see similar journeys with with NASA, with NHS, the rail industry. Um, and that to change a culture, you actually have to first get a person to buy in as an individual. Why is it of benefit to them personally? Because unless you prove that, you then go through a very hard slog. It's not that you can't change culture, but, for example, drink drive culture. Think about that back in the sort of 1970s, 80s, quite common and then there was kind of a bit of a shift change and that you used to see, I, I remember sort of 80s and 90s, TV adverts about it, police were always out. 
and it was do you know what it just felt like it was hard work mm. because what they were trying to do was enforce and actually enforcement is the last thing you wish to do if you want to change a culture that's you know you're almost failing if you're having to do it it's like that and so if you can make it relatable to them that me saying well i get to go home safely at night i get to feel like i've done a good job and you can always kind of relate that in um and, and that people are are the answer to this that's the thing yeah that yeah actually they get to change the culture into what they want to have it as have you got any thoughts what would be your tips for an organization yeah i think there's probably three uh, and, and actually i've had this conversation with um someone from the rail industry you know, about a year ago uh, and it's enlightening kind of having this conversation um i think three things stand out one is uh written policies you know we talk about knowing where you stand uh, the, the fair chart i think having something written down that people can refer to that is the company policy that applies to everyone from the most junior to most senior um you know the the fair flow chart we use um fair it stands for something top of my head i can't remember what it is um but i've heard it referred to people as fairness for all irrespective of rank so it doesn't matter where you are you know the chief of the royal air force or whether you have spent one day in basic training that flow chart applies to you equally and you know where you stand so having a written system i think is really important secondly i think leadership true leadership commitment um some of the best safety reports we see are from pretty senior people who've gone flying or done something else and gone i've messed up i actually could get away with it no one else knows about it but i'm going to put this report in writing um and actually even you know decades ago when we um had uh you know or paper magazines it was pretty common to see stories called i learned about flying from that which is people going i've messed up i want to share the world about it and quite senior people doing it yeah. um and the third one which is probably the most important and carries on from what avril was saying is uh, local champions ambassadors you could call them i don't think you can change a system from outside it's the people who need to change a system from inside and once you've got someone who can be the champion within a workplace who people go i know that person I like that person. He does the same sort of job as I do. And he is championing just culture and these systems. People really respond to that. Um, we have someone called local error managers, Lemscos. They are they are the people who've really changed the system over the last 10 years because they got it and they've convinced and motivated people. And I think we wouldn't be where we were without our local champions of um, error management and just culture. Fantastic. Thank you both very much for your comments on, on that. We'll end with the what we do with um all interviewees and the we've got a common set of three questions that, that we ask everybody so we'll bounce this between the two of you and and see what you think so Avril, if i come to you first what is your book or paper that you use repeatedly is there something that you go back to either a reference or it could be a fictional book actually i've, I've had some people say that there's fiction books that they constantly read but have you got a, a book or a paper that you got that is your go-to reference well, I look at the world in a slightly different way. And actually, my book reflects that and all books, should I say, so that's anything by Terry Pratchett. Because if you ever read it, you can really read it on so many different levels. And I swear, I've read them so many times, that I still haven't got all the jokes and all the references. Um, it, it's, it's a way of thinking on, on, on multiple levels. And so yeah, I would say, if you actually want to do a bit of human factors, read Terry Pratchett. <laughs> Brilliant. Ian, what about you? Um, books, I think there's probably 
There's one book which literally is on the bookshelf, uh, Safety at the Sharp End. I can't remember who's author. Yeah, it's a well-known book. Safety at the Sharp End just puts things into reality. Um, the other book I've read recently, and I'm now encouraging people to read, is uh, by Sabrina uh, Cohen, Hatton, Hatton Cohen. Um, it is called The Heat of the Moment, I think, yeah, from a firefighter's commander's perspective, about decision management and people who are taking decisions within seconds and minutes with life and death decisions. And I think for people who perhaps want to learn more about decision-making and human factors and, and improvement in performance, it's a really easy read and it's a brilliant book to read. Um, so yeah, one's quite sort of theory heavy, one's very easy read. Cool. Um, Avril, if you could go back to your younger self and you pick what age that, that you, you want that hit at, um, is there, anything, is there a bit of advice that you would give give to yourself um, if you knew what you knew, knew you know? No, because uh, we all say, oh, well, hindsight's a wonderful thing. No, it isn't. It's really, really bad. You have to go <laughs> through lived experience to become the person you are today. So it wouldn't matter if I gave myself advice. One, I probably wouldn't listen because I'd be at that age where you don't. And two, <laughs> actually, I, I wouldn't have learned so much if I did give myself advice then. So... Actually, the answer's none. <laughs> that's that's very good. Ian, are you a non-person or uh, you a... No, uh, I'll, I'll give you something. Um, and actually, I, you know, I've heard you ask this question before on the podcast as I'm driving around, and I've thought to myself, what would the answer be? Um, and actually, that has changed me since listening to your podcast previously. Uh, and the advice I gave to my, my now self was, historically, I think I've been quite engineering. I've focused on details too much. You know, I've always wanted to get it 100% right. I'm a details person. And actually, sometimes it's not important. Sometimes you need to get 80%, you know, good enough. Sometimes is good enough. Sometimes you need perfection. Uh, and I now try and go, do I need perfection or is good enough good enough? Because if it is, I can spend my time doing something else, which is equally more enjoyable. I like to think that we, we've had, had an effect on somebody. That, that's awesome to hear. Um, Ian, have you got any thoughts about who, if you if you were listening to the podcast again, who would you like me to, would you, who would you like to hear come through your speakers? Who, who would you like me to interview? Um, I think probably the, firstly, the author, you know, Sabrina, um, I think having read her book, she sounds like an absolutely fascinating person. Uh, and I think that when you look at human factors from kind of, you know, aviation, oil and gas, you know, there are other industries coming forward. Um, I think your chat with uh, Peter, the surgeon that she did recently, great to get an NHS perspective. I'd love to hear um, Sabrina um, uh, Sabrina Cohen Hatton's perspective oh, yeah. on the fire service. Uh, and if I can kind of hog it and ask for a second person, um, you know, Martin Bromley. Yeah, he is to me a hero. Um, when I got into human factors almost ten years ago, it was him and his video that actually made me go, "Wow, I get it." And mm -hmm. I still sometimes use that video when I talk to people about um, a simple operation because people really do do understand that video. And I think the work he's done in the medical side, I would love to, to hear you interview his uh, sort of last 10 years of activity. So yeah, Martin Bromley, please. Cool. We'll, we'll let you have the two. We, we, we're not greedy around here. Um, Avril, what about yourself? Well, I'm going to be uh, off-piste again. Uh, I'm actually going to go for Michael McIntyre. And you think, right, okay, what has a comedian got to do with human factors? Well, if you ever watch him his understanding of the human condition and how we're going to act is is spot on if you take away the human what he's talking about is really good understanding of humans uh two particular ones that i i actually use michael mcintyre a lot in my hf uh, sessions uh the one about parenting 
and what people don't know if you don't have children uh, and the second one is the one in dubai <laughs> and moving uh, a, a sun umbrella around the pool have a look at that i want to come to one of your hf sessions they sound amazing um thank you both for taking the time um to share your insights i mean i know recently everything's been busy and the this interview was meant to happen a while ago and you just bared with everything that was going on and still uh, committed to come in so thank you ever so much for taking the time i really really appreciate it the um and then as we get into um, everything else, I'd like to say thank you to everybody listening um, and sharing in the experience. As we said right from the off, if um, if you've got any comments or thoughts or um, you're inspired by what you've heard, um, comment on, this, on the social media channels where you see it. Um, tell your friends about what's been going on and, and your colleagues. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review or a comment. Uh, we'd really, really appreciate it. But for now, we shall see you all on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human the Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See time. You next and remember, it's more than just common sense. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.